I think I renamed you. Did you? Roby Minault. Roby. <laughs> Roby. That's right. Roby. Robe. All right. Yeah, I need Robe. a little. You need a little thing over the e. I don't know what that's called. Yeah, yeah. Technically, Ex I guess it's Exante uh, Goo. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Recording in progress. Welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. This is, of course, the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. My name is Rob Minot, or actually today it's Robey Minot. <laughs> Uh, no, without without the accent you, it, it is Robe Minot. Okay, well, that works too. <laughs> uh, and uh, joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. What, you're not going to do ladies first? What kind of gentleman are you? Oh, that is ladies first, no? Ooh, oh, snap, that's right. <laughs> I'm uh, Reagan Flurry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was leaving the best for last, Ryan. Okay, and. boy. <laughs> joining us as well, Mr. Steve Barkley. That's Yow Crab Nevitz backwards. Really? He's practiced that probably for years. Wow, yeah, you probably. <laughs> That's amazing. I have no idea what my name backwards would be. I have to do that this weekend, obviously. Uh, and helping us out yet again today, the best for last, Liz Malone. Or Enolium Sill. <laughs> Oh, you did that. You were able to do that fast. See, that would take me hours to figure out mine out. For sure. It's sort of like a mini IQ test too, right? Mm. You, you are... Uh, Obviously already failed. Tulua... Tuluinim... Tuluinim Rob. No, Bob. Boar. Boar. Sorry. Tuluinim Boar. Okay, well, that's... Actually, there's some, there's some credence to that, I think. <laughs> uh hey we're doing a podcast uh how are you guys doing how's everybody excellent how is everybody's dopamine levels uh Good, it's friday well we're recording a podcast so you know normal the anticipation <laughs> <It's> incredible <laughs> yes well um i have to say it's nice to be back uh, of course we had a little bit of a, a break i was off for a few weeks uh doing some uh Doing some surgery. Well, I wasn't doing surgery, but people were doing <laughs> surgery on me. So that was fun. Poor cat. <laughs> Dr. Robe Minot. That's yeah. great. To Melinda Bohr. To you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, as, as many of our super fans, I'm sure, may have noticed, uh, we've, been, we've been off for a few weeks. So that was all my fault. I'll take all the blame for that because... Uh, recovering from a surgery, sitting in a chair, talking to you people, not high on the list, no offense, uh, but uh, yeah, I just needed some time to lay on the couch and moan, So, which would not make for an interesting podcast. Well, you know, some people might be into it, but yeah, I it's not our, not our core audience. True. Um, yeah, that's true. Well, we don't know that. Do we have an audience? 
We, we, we don't know that either. Shan. <laughs> yes, we do. We love them all. We do. Absolutely. 100%. Um, well, hey, speaking of a podcast, uh, hey, Ryan. Rob. Uh, what, uh, what, what are we up to today? Today, we are speaking with Dr. Anna Lemke, who is a professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University and also the author of a book, which is the content of our show we are talking about today, called Dopamine Nation. Yeah, I, uh, I read this book over the break, and I have to say I love it. Um, I, I think this is a, a really important topic, um, and uh, I'm really excited to, to get a chance to talk to her. Extremely relatable content, I think, for everybody. I guess to sort of fill in the audience, uh, so Dopamine Nation, it's, it's really a book about um, addiction and looking at addiction in, in a, a variety of different ways and breaking sort of down how it works within the brain. I think that it's really a relevant conversation these days because I really think that addictive behavior is, is something that is becoming more and more of a problem within our society. And that's sort of some of what, what the book is about too, is, is all the different addictive behaviors that people are, are gaining through just sort of innocuous um, platforms like social media or like video games or uh, even Netflix. I mean, hell, uh, binge watching. I mean, you could argue that that's, that's a type of addictive behavior. So um, I'm really excited to, to get the chance to talk to her. And I know that, you know, after reading it, I've looked at some of my own behaviors and gone, hmm, like, I wonder if I need to, to, to change some of these behaviors up because uh, I don't know. I mean, there might not be anything just as innocuous as, as having an addiction to uh, Netflix. Well, I wouldn't be too concerned about an addiction to Netflix. You know, it's not like you're uh, doing heroin or anything. Well, unless you, you're doing heroin while you're watching Netflix. Well, yeah, you don't know how I watch Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> no, but you know, you laugh. But you know, I did actually go through. I think I went through a little bit of an ad addiction thing. Um, and every everyone's going to laugh, and I'll probably get some nerd cred on the street here. But there was a good three or four years where I went right down the rabbit hole of like World of Warcraft, which is like a video game. But holy crap, do they set that video game up as like just a huge, big, one big addiction machine. Like I remember, like I would just go home, like I would go home from work, rush home from work and like just sit down at the computer and just like launch into this game. And yeah, there was a social component of that because it's a, it's a multiplayer game. You know, and I had friends and stuff that, that we would play and, and, and connect and stuff. And so that was all an element of it. But even the mechanics of the game is really built in a way where you are just constantly like just grinding progress, like trying to get further and further and like trying to get like, you know, stupid stuff. Like, you know, I want to get this set of armor for my character and, and but I have to like grind all these hours into it. And they really do build these the the mechanics of something like that as a real like almost like a, a like a slot machine addiction or a gambling addiction or like it they they really do sort of tie into the the psychology of the brain when they build these mechanics and that can be a real danger to people yeah a lot of you know i've, I've played a number of um uh, games online uh, through my my phone, and one in particular that I I got onto uh, Clash of uh, Clash of Empires, some, uh, something like that. Can't remember the exact name, but um, that game is set up to basically 
pilfer your money like crazy. And yep. some of the people that I, I play with on that game, you know, they were talking about how much money um, people had spent on it. You know, it's a little phone game, you know, you're sitting there, you're building your castle, you're going around, you're beating up other castles, stuff like that. Some of them have spent thousands of dollars on it. Thousands. Like, I, I've spent a grand total of $3.50 on that game because that's what it took for me to be able to upload a personal avatar and now I've got a picture of my bulldog on my account. <laughs> that's the only money I've given the game. <laughs> but thousands and thousands of dollars, you got to think, wow, there's, there's some element of addiction at work there. Well, and those are, those are really interesting games too. All those, the, you know, they call them freemium games because even if you don't spend any money on them, what they do encourage you to do is that a lot of the, the progress in those games are, are sort of time-locked or time-gated mm -hmm. or whatever, right? So you can, you know, you can upgrade your whatever, your castle, but you have to wait like four hours to do it, right? So what that does is that it, it creates this behavior where you're logging into the game every you know, every four hours to do all these upgrades be because of that. And so it it is sort of still, you're still paying, even though you're not paying money, you're paying time and you're building your entire day around, you know, the game, uh, which is really nefarious. And, and it really does, like, it's, like I said, it ties into that brain chemistry part of it, which is, which is gonna be really interesting to talk to Dr. Lemke about. For me, anyway, they need to change the Doritos recipe because that's one of mine. Listen, I've <laughs> often said that there's something in Dorito dust that's addictive. There is. There's Absolutely. A, a totally an addictive uh, quality. The same with fast food, right? Like yep. that stuff, you get addicted to that rush of like having those fries. Like there's something about like sitting down with a hot batch of mcdonald's fries and dipping it in ketchup because man that's there's nothing better you, you look at a bag of doritos bag, bag of doritos suggested serving size is i believe 10 chips <laughs> 10 <laughs> chips is how much it takes just for me to decide if i'm eating doritos or not you know i can eat a bag a day yeah 100 <laughs> i certainly don't have the, the the food addiction i can usually walk away from things but I'm one of those who fills up my Amazon cart. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just keep adding to cart, adding to cart, adding to cart. And then at some point I, I have to stop and I have to take a breath and look and then, oh gosh, delete, 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 delete. But I, I but I know that there are people who, who don't have that extra step of deleting things from the cart, but I get it. It's you get this joy out of clicking like, yeah, add to cart, add to cart. Yeah, no, no, I want this add to cart. And it is, it's, and I'm sure Dr. Lemke is going to talk about it more. It's getting those little dopamine hits. Yeah. Ah, dopamine. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, <laughs> uh, dopamine. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Yeah, Rob. Hey, I also hear that uh, people can call us if they want to leave a, uh, leave us a message or make a comment. Uh, is that true? That is true. If they have a comment or suggestion for a topic or a guest for the show, they can give us a call at 1-844-996-4282. We guarantee that uh, you will get a dopamine hit with every message that you leave. So, uh, <laughs> okay, maybe we can't guarantee that, but. 
Oh, yeah. We Actually, totally no, can. we can't. We totally can. Because look at all those accessible overlay companies. They totally make false claims all the time. Nobody's getting sued there. So, yeah. You know what? Get, you'll totally get a dopamine hit if uh, you call that number. And we'll flood your brain with dopamine. Guaranteed. Yeah. And you can't blame us either because it's just the industry we're in. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and bring her on. And uh, let's, let's, get, let's get some dopamine levels going. Right. Joining us now is Dr. Anna Lemke. Well, Dr. Lemke, I want to really thank you for joining us today. Um, why don't we start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the book? Sure. So um, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm on the faculty at Stanford University School of Medicine. I see patients. I teach. I do research. Um, I wrote a book called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which is all about how our primitive wiring is mismatched for our modern ecosystem. Or another way of saying that is that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction in this dopamine overloaded world where we have almost infinite access to these incredibly potent feel-good substances and behaviors. And my book is not just about the problem, but also has practical solutions for what to do about it based on people with addiction and recovery who I consider to be modern day prophets for the rest of us. So why don't we start really basic and for the audience, um, just can you explain to us exactly what is dopamine? Dopamine is a chemical that our brain makes. It's fundamental for the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's also very important to movement. So when people get Parkinson's disease, they have too little dopamine. Um, and it's no coincidence that dopamine is related to both movement and motivation, because of course, in order to get the object of our desire, we have to get up off the couch and go get it. Dopamine is thought to potentially be even more important to motivation than it is to pleasure itself. In other words, more important to wanting than to liking. And my favorite experiment to illustrate this is some scientists took a rat and engineered it so it had no dopamine. And then they put food in its mouth and they saw that the rat chewed the food and seemed to get pleasure from it. But when they put that food a single body length away from the rat, the rat starved to death. It couldn't be bothered to get up and locomote one body length away to get the food uh, that it needed. So dopamine is really, really key for motivation and also um, for the experience of pleasure and reward. And dopamine is the key molecule um, in the process of becoming addicted. And that's what I talk a lot about in the book, the basic neuroscience of addiction and how that neuroscience can provide a framework uh, for all of us as we're thinking about um, our consumptive choices in the world. So in terms mm. of, of this connection um, to addiction that dopamine has, is that a fairly new revelation or is that something we've known for quite a while? I would say in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty darn new. So we, we knew that dopamine existed in animal brains for quite a long time. But it wasn't until the 1950s that dopamine was recognized as a human brain neurotransmitter. Since that time, there's been an explosion of research around dopamine, just tens of thousands of papers published 
um, with some of the most exciting recent findings being um, functional imaging brain scans in humans of what's going on um, as people become addicted and as they recover from addiction. So um, it's pretty new. It's a pretty new idea. And of course, our understanding of addiction is being progressively refined as well. You know, and what we think right now about the role of dopamine and how the brain changes in addiction will probably be um, continue to be modified as we move forward. This isn't the end of the story, just it's just the beginning. Are, are we... Uh... Are we to the point where we know uh, differences in the brain as to how dopamine affects younger people versus older people? Are, are there differences there? Well, we certainly know about differences in development in the young brain versus the older brain. And then we kind of infer uh, that's, that differential development and its impact on you know our relationship with dopamine, let's say. And then the most important um, thing to know there is that uh, we have more neurons than we'll ever have at about age three. And from about age three to age 25, there's a slow process of um, pruning back on the neurons that we're not using and making the neurons that we do use often uh, making those circuits more efficient by myelinating, myelinating them. So putting on a protective sheath that makes them work better and faster. Uh, and this process is called pruning. And it does mean that the kinds of coping strategies and things we learn uh, to do uh, in childhood and adolescence up until you know age 25 um, will have a direct impact on which of those neurons we keep and which of the ones we prune away. So that if we develop sort of maladaptive, addictive coping strategies in that crucial window, it's likely to uh, affect us throughout our adult life. Dr. Lemke, um, I was very curious to find out um, a little bit about what your personal motivation was in, in writing this book. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that you took so much time and effort to really dig into your own personal life and share some very personal details about your own experiences with dopamine. So I was curious about what your motivation was when you decided to sit down and, and put a pen to paper. Yeah, I, thanks for that question. I think my main motivation is, was just really to help people. Um, I feel like, you know, I had accumulated a certain amount of uh, wisdom um, after 25 years of seeing patients, and I felt like it would be helpful to share that with other people. But I was also trying to make a larger point about um, the mental health problems in the world today. And that larger point was, you know, we are seeing increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide all over the world, especially in rich nations. And it's really a puzzle because we have more things than we could ever want. We're living longer. Uh, we have all kinds of amazing uh, medical interventions to stamp out disease. I mean, by all objective measures, you'd think we would all be happier than ever. And yet uh, the World Happiness Survey uh, reports that people, uh, especially in rich nations, um, are less happy in 2018 than they were in 2008. Rates of depression have increased 50% in the last three decades, especially 
in rich nations. Rates of anxiety, suicide are going up. And I really um, believe that um, one of the main reasons that we're all so much more unhappy is not because we necessarily are, you know, experiencing more trauma or the income gap or don't have access to, you know, medication or healthcare or a lot of the reasons that you hear about. I think one of the main drivers is that we're constantly bombarding our reward pathways with too much dopamine. And as a result, um, we are driving down our own endogenous dopamine production, which is making us anxious and depressed. And not only do I believe that based on my experiences with my patients, many of whom come to me seeking help for anxiety and depression and who get better just by abstaining from their drug of choice without any other intervention alone, but also my own experience with, um, as I described, my addiction to romance novels, where over the course of becoming addicted to romance novels, number one, I didn't even see it happening. And number two, um, it really um, led me to get less and less joy from other things in my life. There was this narrowing of my focus, which happens in addiction, where other things, more modest rewards become less enjoyable. I was no longer interested in my work, uh, in my children, in my husband. And um, when I recognized that I had developed an addiction and then eliminated, eliminated um, my drug of choice for a period of time, I recaptured that original joy. Um, and so really wanting to draw a parallel between my admittedly quite minor addiction in the grand scheme of things and the more severe addictions I see among my patients, and then extend that even further out to capture you know, these broad public health um, problems that we're seeing with worsening mental health, and to essentially hypothesize that it's dopamine overload uh, that's causing uh, the kind of general misery um, that we see today. Well, you definitely were not the only one absorbing all the mommy porn, hence the success of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Indeed. But, but that sort of opens up a, a sort of another question, um, because one of the things that I found really interesting about the book that you talk about is that once somebody has some sort of an addiction, that really changes the, the neural pathways um, forever, it seems. Um, so... I guess my question is, is there really anything, is there any such thing as sort of an innocuous addiction? Like it could, could very well being, you know, addicted to something like Netflix that doesn't seem to be, you know, all that big of a deal. Does that open up somebody to maybe get another addiction to something else that might be a bigger deal? It's a great question. I think we really don't quite know the answer. So, so let me talk first a little bit about why we do think that there are some permanent brain changes that occur once people become addicted. It's based both on animal evidence and also experiential knowledge of people with severe addictions, um, which may not necessarily translate to a you know modest Netflix binge watching problem, right? That we don't have data for. But just so your listeners are aware what it is based on, um, there's a very famous study in which rats were progressively injected with cocaine over a series of seven days. 
And rats, you know, in a, a rat holding environment will typically hover on the edges of that environment. They don't like to go into the middle um, of the cage. But with each successive day of cocaine injection, what those rats will do is start running, first jogging and then running and then running faster. And by day seven, they're basically in kind of like a manic running frenzy as measured by how many times they cross beams of light across the middle of that cage. Now, if you then stop injecting those rats with cocaine and you wait a whole year, which is essentially a rat lifetime, and then re-inject one of those rats with cocaine, what you'll find is they're immediately in a running frenzy. In other words, there's no longer that kind of gradual progression over the seven days to get them in that running frenzy. They're dropped right down into it. And this is very consistent with the lived experience of people with severe addiction. People who um, will describe that even after years of abstinence, if they're exposed to their drug or exposed to a similar drug, it doesn't take but a moment for them to be dropped right back into the depths of their addiction. There's no kind of gradual startup period. Now, that's not true for everybody with addiction, but it's, it's true enough for enough people that it does make us think that there's some kind of latent brain changes um, that occur once people have become severely addicted. I will also, though, add, uh, you know, as a note of optimism and hope, that there is emerging evidence that um, recovery, first of all, we know experientially recovery is possible. People get into recovery and stand to recovery for decades. Um, a lot of people um, get into recovery from their addiction. So I don't want by any means to leave you know, your listeners feeling at all hopeless about addiction or the state of recovery, because there's plenty of reason for hope. But it looks like based on some uh, early work, including the work of my colleague, Edie Sullivan here at Stanford, that um, what happens as people recover from addiction is that they don't necessarily reverse the kind of permanent damage caused by their addiction, but rather find a workaround. So neural networks and pathways that reroute around that damaged area are what allow for the healing um, in recovery. And again, remember, we continue to um, make new neurons lifelong. It used to be thought that once you got to age 25, that was it. You never made any, any new neurons. But in the last 30 years, we've discovered that, in fact, we continue to make new neurons throughout life. And there are behaviors that we can do that promote neurogenesis or the birth of new neurons. For example, exercise is one of the most potent forms uh, for neurogenesis. So um, yes, it's true that our brains are probably permanently changed by severe addictions to substances. It is not yet known whether process or behavioral addictions like a romance reading addiction or a Netflix binge addiction is gonna have the same kind of permanent impact on the brain. But what I will say is that those kinds of behavioral addictions follow a very similar trajectory in terms of their natural history um, and how it looks in a person's life. So it, it would be not unreasonable to guess that, that there may indeed be some long-lasting changes as a result of those behaviors as well. If Netflix is a gateway addiction, we are in such big trouble. That's all I can say. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I think, you know, the one of the important sort of points that I want people to just sort of be alert to is just the way in which 
everything has become more potent, more reinforcing, more drugified, you know, like even shows, right. They, the way that they kind of end on a cliffhanger, leave that button right there, watch next video. Um, you know, they know they like, like all, all the people who make these things have cracked the code on what keeps us, you know, obsessively engaged so that it's that much easier to become compulsively over-consuming than ever before. I, I think that's something that people may not be all that aware of and probably need to start paying attention to. Yeah, and that's the really that's the thing that really alarmed me with um, with um, both your book and you know there's this this documentary that it, that actually you're in um, called Social Dilemma. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I had a weekend and I, and I, and I read your book and I, I watched that documentary and I was really in a different headspace after that. Yeah. Um, because it is a little bit of a wake up call because this sort of makes me want to pose sort of the question, do we need to, to change the way that we talk about addiction? Because I feel like a lot of people, when, when they hear the word addiction, they think they go straight to, oh, it's a drugs or it's gambling or sex, they never really think about uh, talking about addiction in, in the sense of like social media or, you know, all these other like seemingly innocuous ad ad addictive things that really they're, they're manufactured to be addictive. I mean, the, the closest thing that I can think of in recent memory was cigarettes. Um, for right. many, many years, they were, they were marketed and they were sold as you know, something that that was physically addictive. Um, so do we really need to, to really sort of sit up as a society and realize that that marketing in this way is going to really damage our society? You know, I think it's important for us to recognize that especially many of these digital products really have been drugified, which means they have been engineered to be addictive. Now, the majority of us will not actually develop a clinical addiction to these kinds of um, products. You know, we'll engage in compulsive overconsumption, we'll, uh, we'll correct, we'll do okay for a while, we'll maybe slip back into it, but we'll not necessarily get to the point where it's seriously adversely impacting our lives. And just to briefly, you know, define addiction, addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. Uh, most of us will not progress to that point. But just because most of us won't get addicted to social media or video games or online pornography or online shopping or whatever it is, doesn't mean that it's not addictive. Because sometimes I will hear this argument, well, you know, most of us will be fine. Okay, well, most of us will be fine drinking alcohol in moderation. And most of us will probably be okay using cannabis in moderation. But a subset of us will get addicted to these addictive products. And so I do think that we as a society have to recognize that they are drugs, have to think differently about how we expose our children to these drugs, and have to make sure that we put checks and balances in place to minimize the harm caused by addiction to these digital products. Because they, they really can be addictive and they can devastate people's lives. And children should not have unfettered access to the internet and to phones and to Snapchat and Instagram and, and all that stuff. So Dr. Lemke, I'm very curious to hear your opinion 
on the recent uh, disclosures made by the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, and much of the information that I think we all sort of suspected, but now we we know. Um, kind of would love to sort of pick your brain a little bit about how someone in your profession um, felt about hearing this information all coming to light. You know, I think it's important that the corporations like Facebook take responsibility for the harm done by their products. Um, and, you know, to try to pretend like there's not harm, I think is in bad faith. So, um, you know, I, 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 and let me just say too, what the, in, what Facebook has put forward in its defense is that the studies are not compelling. The studies are not convincing. I don't think we need studies to show us that, that some people are harmed by Facebook, you know? Um, and, you know, anecdotally, it's mostly teenage girls. And again, the vast majority of people who use Facebook will not develop a full-blown addiction, will not incur serious, you know, adverse mental health effects. And a lot of people will benefit. Um, but that doesn't negate that a subset of us will be harmed, um, that, that, that these kinds of products are inherently addictive, and that the corporations have a responsibility, especially to minors and to children. So I don't think it's overblown to conceptualize digital products like social media products um, as akin to something like cigarettes and to think differently about you know, how we create access to these products, how we tax these products, how we advertise or don't advertise these products to certain demographic groups, uh, especially children. But one of the things that um, I find interesting and striking is that to date, it seems that there's been this real fixation solely on social media with very little discussion about the harms related to online pornography, online video games, online shopping, um, online gambling. So I'm, I'm both, you know, heartened that we're having the conversation and, and actually incredibly mystified that the conversation is so focused on social media. Yeah. And the other aspect of that too, that, that is concerning to me too, is that, you know, we've kind of been down this road before, um, in terms of, you know, say, say privacy, for example, like, you know, you know, in the mid two thousands, um, it, it, there was a big kerfuffle about, about privacy concerns and, and social media and stuff. And there was, you know, people made noise for a while, but then they kind of just, it seemed like just collectively as a society, we just kind of shrugged our shoulders and was like, well, okay, we're kind of okay with that. And we just went on our merry way. Right. And, and I really <laughs> hope that, that this isn't that case. I mean, I think that whistleblowers are all, all great, but you know, there, there needs to be a response. And I don't know if I'm feeling like there's really a strong enough pushback against these platforms and about, about these systems that they, that they're building that are, that are so incredibly addictive. Um, I, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting few years. And I, and I certainly hope that, that um, some measures will take place. But, you know, as we know, Facebook, all Facebook has really seemed to, their response is just that, you know what, let's rebrand, let's rebrand and make right, it worse. Right. Let's be meta. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you're, you know, I, I think you're hitting on something real, this sort of like, um, 
you know, moral panic that just comes and then passes like a wave. And that's, that's not really going to help anything. I guess what I, what I, what I, the way I think about this problem is kind of like, uh, you know, climate change, like climate change is not going to be remedied by people not using plastic bags. People should not use plastic bags. They should bring their cloth bags when they go shopping. Cause that does make a difference because every little bit makes a difference, but we also need corporations and the government to step in to help. And I think the same thing with, with, uh, you know, this problem, the problem of addiction, the problem of these, uh, you know, the addictive potential and other adverse effects of digital products that individuals have a responsibility. Like they can't just point their finger at Facebook and say, Facebook, get me off of, you know, Instagram. Um, but at the same time that individuals, you know, bear responsibility for their, for their actions, the corporations bear responsibility and they need to, um, you know, help parents and help individuals and help schools think creatively about how to help us limit our compulsive overuse. You know, and I was thinking about this too over the weekend is that, you know, we're, everything has to be an extreme. Um, yeah. And I think that I feel like the first time I really noticed it was say the Harry Potter craze, you know, when that, when those right. book, was books first came out, there was none of this, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a great set of books and people enjoy them. It, it was almost like a fanaticism. And, right. And that seems like ever since then, everything needs to be that or else it's a failure. If, if people aren't fanatical about it and cosplaying and creating conventions over something, then it's not really <laughs> much of a success. You know, I really appreciate that comment because it's so true and it touches on a couple of things. First of all, really what we're experiencing is the dark side of successful capitalism, right? Um, I shop, therefore I am. I mean, at the end of the day, what are we but what we consume? That's how we're defined in the modern world, which is really so empty. But the other thing that you're getting at is just the sort of comparison effect, which is a very pernicious aspect of social media, not just the compulsive, you know, addictive piece, but also the the kind of ways in which we now compare ourselves to everybody else on the planet who's doing so many more interesting and amazing things than we are. So no matter what you do, you end up feeling like it's never going to be enough. Like if it's not Harry Potter, forget it. Yeah, that's right. So I want to I want to step back a little bit and talk about because I found this I found this part really fascinating too and that's and and maybe you could explain it to the audience a little bit better than than I could but this connection that that dopamine has with pain and so the the sort of this balance between um, pleasure and pain because I do feel like this also factors into some of the societal dangers. Uh, of addiction that we're that we're looking at. So, can you kind of explain I explain that a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the most interesting findings to me in neuroscience in the last hundred years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So, the same part of the brain that processes pleasure also processes pain, and they work like opposite sides of the ba of a balance, like a teeter totter in a kid's playground. So when we do something pleasurable, dopamine is released in the reward pathway and the balance tilts to the side of pain. But no sooner has that happened than our brain will make adjustments in order to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis because that's a major driving physiologic force in the universe in general is getting back to homeostasis. And it will do that by downregulating dopamine production and dopamine transmission, but not just back to baseline tonic levels of dopamine, 
it will actually decrease dopamine below baseline levels into a dopamine deficit state briefly before going back to tonic baseline. I usually imagine this as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance, but they like it. So they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain before hopping off and allowing the balance to be level again. And this is really important because it means that every time we do something that is intensely pleasurable, that releases a bunch of dopamine in the reward pathway, there's a price to pay. There's a come down, there's an after effect. And it's not just like the hangover, there's a subtle little cost, that moment of going into that dopamine deficit state where we're wanting you know, one more episode on Netflix or one more level in the video game or one more YouTube video or one more piece of chocolate. Um, and then here's the real clincher. If we continue to engage with that substance or behavior repeatedly over time, that initial response gets weaker and shorter in duration, but the after response gets stronger and longer. In other words, we get more and more gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance. We need more of our drug and more potent forms over time to get the same effect. And ultimately those gremlins are camped out on the pain side of the balance and we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state. And that's essentially the addicted brain. Once that happens, in order just to feel normal, we need to keep using our drug of choice. To get high, we need more and more potent forms. Modest rewards no longer work because a little piece of chocolate is not going to compete with all that chocolate cake I've had over all those weeks and months. And then when we're not using our drug of choice, our balance essentially tips to the side of pain. We're in a chronic dopamine deficit state, and we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Is there any sort of biological reason why some people are more susceptible to the dopamine lows than others? Why some people are more prone to addictive behavior than others? Yeah, so there are a lot of theories about this. And first, let me validate your question by saying we're not all equally vulnerable to this problem. Some of us are a lot more vulnerable than others. Um, and it's thought to be probably a combination of kind of a low threshold reward baseline. So individuals who just need a lot more stimulation to feel any kind of reward, combined with a tendency toward impulsivity, not being able to really assess future consequences and acting on a thought or emotion kind of right away without being able to consider those future consequences, along with the kind of, um, let's say tenacity or a obsessionality, that willingness to work really hard to get the drug. My, my colleague, Rob Malenka, says that the way um, he as a neuroscientist measures addictiveness uh, in laboratory animals is just simply how hard that animal is willing to work to get their drug, how many mazes they're willing to climb through, how many times they're willing to press that lever, how many shoots they're willing to uh, you know go up or down. And some people just have just remarkable tenacity around that. Like, whereas the average person would be like, well, that was fun and more was funner. Um, I'm tired. Like I'm not, I'm not willing to work that hard. Whereas some people just really, they're willing to work incredibly hard, probably driven not so much by the getting high part as the dopamine deficit part. And when that balance gets tilted to the side of pain, just wanting to be out of pain, wanting to not hurt. 
So we all sort of share this, this, the same, the same neural framework. We all have that, that teeter totter between pain and pleasure. And, and we all share the same, um, you know, use of dopamine, but for some people, um, there are, there are differences in their brains that make them more susceptible to addiction. Yes, absolutely. So about 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted is inherited. If you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you're more likely than the average person to get addicted yourself, even if raised outside of uh, that substance using home. So it's very clear that this is in part an innate um, kind of vulnerability, but development also plays a huge role probably through epigenetics, you know, changes in, in gene expression based on experience. People who experience trauma are more likely to get addicted. People living in poverty, people experiencing unemployment are more, more likely to get addicted. But the other really important aspect of addiction risk just has to do with simple access. If you're living in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on a street corner, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted. And this is really relevant for modern times. Because today we have so much more access to so many potent forms of drugs and behaviors, so much more potent and so much more ubiquitous than ever before, that we've essentially all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. For example, if you take uh, the cigarette, so in the 1880s, the cigarette rolling machine was invented. Prior to that, um, you could make about four cigarettes a minute. Once the cigarette rolling machine was invented, they could manufacture 20,000 cigarettes a minute. I don't even know what the modern cigarette rolling machine makes, but you can be guaranteed it's in the millions of cigarettes per minute. And that's true for every single substance across the board, whether you, it's cannabis or alcohol or MDMA or what have you. Um, drugs have become more potent, more accessible, um, more ubiquitous, quantity and frequency and potency have a huge impact on whether or not we become addicted. If we use more of a drug or more potent forms of that drug, we're more likely to get addicted. So, um, and then of course, you know, there are drugs that didn't even exist before, right? Like video games, like online pornography, uh, like social media, uh, like online gambling. Um, so, so this has meant that the, the kind of risk vulnerability diathesis has really shifted and that even though it's true that there are some of us who are more vulnerable innately to the problem of addiction than others, in the modern ecosystem, we've all become more vulnerable due to increased access, potency, quantity, and variety. Yeah. And, you, and one of the things that I also found really fascinating uh, that you talk about in the book is our relationship with pain. What What's really chilling to me is this idea that we are now living in the society that um, more and more people have more access to pleasurable, addictive things and have a lower tolerance to pain. And could you, can you kind of speak to, to what the implications of that are? Yeah, I mean, I think the implications are enormous. It means that we're less resilient in the face of obstacles. And at the same time, we have less access to experiencing pleasure because we've essentially bombarded our reward pathways to the point that we're in this chronic dopamine deficit state. And this is really counterintuitive, but one of the, I think, real aha moments for me in my work was working with patients with chronic pain due to you know very serious 
and debilitating um, diseases and injuries who had put been put on daily opioids as a way to um, manage their pain, who over time not only needed more of the opioid in more potent forms to get the same effect, but actually had a worsening of their pain conditions as a result of being on opioids. And that was really um, just eye-opening for me because it was this realization that, wow, this really well-intentioned intervention, you know, giving people opioids to help with their chronic pain actually makes pain, can make pain worse through this process of neuroadaptation, which is a universal reaction to any, um, you know, highly reinforcing drug that we put in our body, um, such that th these people actually ended up with more pain than when they started. And of course, um, you know, now that um, we've recognized the problem with too many opioids in this country and we're having people tapered down and off. Studies are showing that the majority of patients with chronic pain who have been on opioids long-term who get off of opioids actually are experiencing improvements in pain. And so all of that is just, just a really a kind of an example writ large of what is the potential for all of us living in a dopamine overloaded world that in a gradual and insidious way, we can become more depressed, more anxious, less engaged, um, more bored, um, less resilient. And, and we don't really know why. And yet I, I believe that a big part of it is that we're ingesting all of these feel-good chemicals and behaviors, which is ultimately making us more unhappy. It's really interesting. You you just described um, my my mom's experience with opioids. Um, she she went from uh, she she has chronic nerve pain from a, a botched um, uh, back surgery, and um, she went from uh, where she was taking uh, Tylenol threes to you know stronger forms of of uh, codeine. Ended up on uh, morphine uh, for a while, and. Uh, the last time she landed in hospital for something unrelated, uh, the doctor looked at all of the stuff that she was on and went, well, hold on, took her off all of that stuff and put her on Tylenol and her pain was diminished. Wow. Yeah. yeah thank, thanks for sharing that. I think it's really important for people to hear those stories because it's so counterintuitive. And yet, you know, if you have a family member who's been through that, or like me, I've seen so many patients in that situation, it's just like, it's such a wake up call, you know? And also I would just add that, you know, although chronic pain is very difficult to treat, especially in neuropathic or centralizing pain disorders, there's a lot of interesting promising work using hormesis or mild to, not, mild to moderate noxious stimuli to actually help pain. So in other words, um, ice cold water baths as a way to help pain. Why would that work? Because by basically inflicting mild to moderate doses of pain, what we do is trigger our body to upregulate our own homeostatic healing mechanisms to start make, making more of our own endogenously or internally produced opioids and endocannabinoids and dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine which is much more enduring and much less susceptible to the problem of tolerance over time. Um, another exciting, you know, uh, sort of uh, intervention now for chronic pain is using an opioid receptor blocker like naltrexone in very low doses, 
which has been shown to kind of trick the body into thinking that it's not making enough opioids. And so then it starts upregulating its own endogenous production. So these are, or acupuncture is another great example, right? How does acupuncture work? We don't know exactly, but one theory that has some evidence behind it is that it's actually the infliction of pain that then triggers the body's own endogenous opioid production as a way to combat pain. So I think these are what we have to think about, not just in terms of physical pain, but also emotional pain. What are the sort of challenging and yes, even painful experiences that we can introduce into our lives in mild to moderate doses as a better way to upregulate mood? That reminds me of the chapter of your book, The Pursuit of Pain. And I believe your patient's name was Michael, who was the former drug addict who then turned to the cold water immersion therapy that you just described. And and I I remember being fascinated by his new obsession with making the water colder and colder because he needed it to create a new, uh, I guess, more dopamine. Um, But I'm just wondering, in some cases, are patients inadvertently creating a new addiction from a past addiction? Yeah. So this is always the danger, right? What's called cross addiction that in giving up one substance or behavior, patients then latch on to another. So we always talk about that in clinical care. And although I do hold up um, hormesis, which is to say mild to moderate doses of pain as a better and more enduring way to get dopamine, it's also true that people can get addicted to pain um, and can you know take that to an extreme, either um, in terms of quantity So just, you know, for example, with exercise, exercising too much or potency um, in the case of the ice cold water, freezing that water down, you know, so, so much that it then becomes more like an intoxicant or a drug than it is a healthier adaptive behavior. So absolutely something to watch for. You know, and after, and after this conversation, reading the book, um, you know, I really just, my takeaway, I guess, is that as usual, human beings, we're, we're, we've kind of screwed, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot because <laughs> in a way, you know, we've figured out ways to, to manipulate the brain without really understanding enough about the brain to know where we're really doing some serious harm to ourselves. Yeah, and I think too, just that, you know, again, I do think that our society and the industrial revolution and capitalism is just all geared toward, you know, making intoxicants. And that's sort of the path of least resistance in terms of immediate gratification and wanting that quick fix. And I do think that we need to resist that because that that's a path, path of doom, if you ask me. And if you ask my patients with severe addiction, they're the, they're the ones who have figured it out before the rest of us. Um, and we really have to, you know, figure out a new way of, of living in this ecosystem, not just, you know, for, for our own health purposes, but also, um, you know, in terms of the planet, right? When you look at our consumption of all of these products, it's also leading to the demise of our planet. Um, so for many different reasons, I think we need to gain perspective, step outside of our immediate gratification um, resist the kind of quick pleasures, um, at least in the doses that we're currently consuming them, and then actually um, intentionally try to make our lives 
a little bit more stressful, a little bit less convenient, a little bit harder. The other thing that really fascinated me too is this idea of as human beings, we really weren't meant to live in a society where we have access to absolutely everything we need anytime we need it. Like this is a really foreign place that we find ourselves in because really the whole system was built, if you think about it, on an instinctual level in terms of we're supposed to be seeking out things that bring us pleasure, which ideally are things that keep us alive, like eating um, and procreating and that sort of thing, things that, that keep the species going. And we're supposed to avoid pain in terms of those are the stuff that that's that's the stuff that's going to actually kill us out in the wild and really there's supposed to be this balance you know we're not right. supposed to 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 have just access to one and none of the other and that is really sort of um creating a lot of this this these mental health issues that we're seeing oh absolutely i mean um you know when you think about well it seems like nature's cruel joke. Why on earth would nature make pleasure be followed by pain? Well, the reason to do that is to keep us um, seeking, right? Which is totally advantageous in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, but terribly mismatched for a dopamine overloaded world. What advice would you give to somebody who is confronting somebody who is living with a harmful addiction? I know that when they get to you, they're in a they're in a place where they're ready to start taking some steps. But before they get to your office and the loved ones, the friends and family are trying to get them to that place, any advice that you could give people? Well, first of all, I would say that probably most of the patients who walk through my office door are not ready to make a change. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that were the case. Uh, there's a lot of Uh, powers of persuasion that have to be called on. And, um, you know, part of why I wrote the book was to sort of extend those powers of persuasion to other folks out there who might wonder if they themselves have a problem or if their loved one does or know their loved one does and want to know how to convince that person. I think that neuroscience is really compelling and convincing in this day and age. I find if I talk to a patient, you know, about all kinds of reasons uh, to change their behavior, it doesn't carry the same weight as I if I start to talk about the science. Somehow, science is like, oh, okay, that sounds real. I better do that. So, um, I do think you know, understanding the neuroscience and the pleasure pain balance is really helpful. And then, as I talk about in my book, you know, I've developed this kind of simple framework of the dopamine fast, which can be incredibly illuminating for people, just as a way to discover that they were addicted. I have many patients who do not think that they're addicted and they do the dopamine fast where they abstain from their drug of choice if they're able, not everybody can, but many can for one month and they come back and they go, wow, I hadn't realized the impact that my consumption was having on my life. And what's great about that is that then I don't have to convince them anymore. They feel so much better having abstained for a month in most cases and they see true cause and effect that they're now motivated on their own to make a change in their lives. I don't have to persuade them anymore. Steve wants me to give up candy corn for 30 days. There you go. That needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Candy corn is just wrong. (laughs) It it is wrong. The taste and the the shape. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) 
and the shape. I, I, I cannot relate to the candy corn addiction <laughs> at all. But that's the amazing thing about addiction. Everybody's got a different drug. <laughs> Dr. Lunke, I have to again thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and talking with us. Uh, I love the book. Uh, the name of the book is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Recommend it to everybody out there. We will put the link to buy it in our show notes. Um, where can people find you online? Well, I am not on social media, but there is a <laughs> web page that was made for the book uh, called dopaminenation.com or onalemke.com. It's the same web page. Well, thank you again. And uh, yeah, that's a lot to think about. I'm telling you. Well, my pleasure. It was really uh, nice talking with all of you. You all have sort of soothing voices, which I, I, I don't know why that is, but it's been really nice to talk to you. No problem. As long as it's not uh, hitting the dopamine, making your dopamine spike. <laughs> yeah. not, no, okay, not, good. Not, not too sure. bad. Okay, good. <laughs> you got a new listener to the podcast. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and for reading the book. Awesome. Thanks. We loved it. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Wow. Holy cow. Well, does it, who feels smarter around here? I feel uh, smarterer. Smarter. <laughs> I feel like there's so much more to know. Yeah, there really is, Steve. I, I would highly recommend uh, reading the book. You should, you should, um, I think, I think you would get a lot out of it. I think every, like, honestly, like it is a really an important book to read, especially given, um, uh, you know, like like we talked about, uh, this total unfettered access to, you know, material and entertainment, constantly bombarded with it. Um, I really think that um, it, it's it's something that everybody can really think about and to really evaluate how how you're consuming things. And can, if I could just add something, is I uh, listened to Dr. Lemke's audiobook version, and um, after just speaking with her now and having read, I'm sorry, listened, read the audiobook, I can definitely say that listening to the book, it's sort of like getting your own little session with her. <laughs> it, because she speaks and she writes in first person and it's, it's just a very um, enlightening and introspective uh, work that she puts out there. It really is. There's also been a couple podcasts that are up on YouTube. Um, there's a couple that are about two hours in length of uh, people interviewing her as well, talking about, you know, dopamine and the psychology around it. So definitely take a look online because there's lots of information out there. You know, it's just, it, it amazes me just how little we really know about the brain still. Like we, we really don't understand all the in intricacies of how it works and why we do things that we do and there's so much work left to be done in that field. That's why it pisses me off that, you know, these people going to space, stop going to space. Let's, let's focus in on the brain. Let's look at the ocean. We haven't World even hunger. explored the ocean. World hunger. Yeah. We have a lot of problems that we still have to solve other than sending William Shatner to space. Like, no, that had to be done. Yeah, that did have to be done. Okay, fine. Yeah. He gets a pass. William. Oh, they should have left him there. No. Oh. I'm not a Trekkie. Sorry. Ooh. Sorry. That's right. But he's Captain Kirk. Come on. There's a legacy there. And yeah. he's Canadian, so be nice. Yeah. He's, he's our peeps. <laughs> but, yeah, you're. But in all seriousness, I, I, really, I really do think that these, these conversations that we're having about, especially around social media and stuff, and, and the the societal damage that it 
could very well be doing. I think there are very important conversations to be having. Yeah, I, I just was going to say, I don't think that there's really any doubt that, that social media is causing harm. I, I mean, that's pretty much proven. It, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting that when you you look at a, a show like The uh, the Social Dilemma, you know, there's, there's people in there talking about how, you know, oh, they made this change to the platform and they made that change to the platform. And the suicide rate amongst young women went up. And it's like, <laughs> are you out of your mind? Where else are you allowed to experiment on humans like that? Yeah. why why is that being allowed to happen that's it's insanity but it's uh i guess just because we you know clearly our legislators don't understand the 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 power of these platforms and and just how much of an effect it has on the human brain mm-hmm. in fairly short Sorry. time we are going to start seeing i think some legislation around social social media platforms for sure really see i hope so i mean you're I you're so. a little bit more optimistic than i am because i i think I think that you hit on uh, earlier, Steve, exactly what the problem is. That I think a lot of legislative bodies just don't understand it, and and I think that in general, like people just look at oh, social media, they see it as a as a harmless thing, um, and it's just it's just not when you look at the big picture of it. So I I hope so. I hope you're right, Ryan. I hope that um, people, especially with all these whistleblowers and stuff coming out. I'd like to think that there's some changes happening, but I have to think back to like the, whatever, the late 2000s, where all the privacy concerns came up and people just kind of went, well, well, whatever. And they just, they didn't do, we didn't do anything about it. Well, and I think that's where, you know, people have to do their homework. They have to dig in a little bit more, look at the science, look at the statistics. You know, there's enough fact out there to show the detriment social media has had on society. Um, like Steve was talking about the suicide rates, um, there's there's more to it than just that. And all you got to do is look at your kids and their screen time. It's not hard to see. Well, the yeah. whole thing was viewed from one angle, and that's profit. Yeah. Right. And just as a reference to Social Dilemma Steve talked about, it is available on Netflix. Yep. Indeed. And it is terrifying. <laughs> definitely, definitely watch it. I'm telling you. Scariest movie you'll watch all year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Forget Fear Street. Just watch yep. Social Dilemma. It's true. Um, yeah, and I would like, I honestly, like, if you really want to shake up your worldview, watch uh, Social Dilemma and then and, and read uh, Dopamine Nation. It, it is really going to open your eyes. It's kind of shutting down. I'm, I'm like, I'm seriously thinking about like having like one day a month where it's just screen free day. Maybe even more than one time, like maybe every two weeks or something, just have a day where you're just like, you know what, putting my phone away, no TV, no internet, I'm just going to read a book or something, like just... On your tablet? (laughs) Damn it, damn it. You're right, I'm going to have to go buy a physical book, I guess. Exactly, right? Like you think think of the world we're living in now. It's, It's consumption, it's instant gratification everything's within reach right but you know what's so weird about that though that you know we we remember a time when mm-hmm. you know before the internet like at, where you had to go to a library to check out a book yeah like <laughs> oh, so gosh but even, the Dewey decimal system yeah mm-hmm. the encyclopedia was google <laughs> like i i remember those times and yet the idea of going back to that is really hard for me so i can't even imagine uh what it what it must be like as a 20 year old who grew up with all that stuff, who grew up with the internet um, to be like, yeah, I'm just gonna 
completely re completely remove myself from that for a day must feel like really really super daunting yeah i imagine but oh that means i can't go on my playstation either damn it nope <laughs> after my read i have to read maybe okay with maybe a couple exceptions uh so you know i've already i'm <laughs> that's already how it starts i know damn it that's yeah, how it red starts, dopamine Rob. nation i can recognize these things in myself now you're already bargaining look at that i know exactly yep uh. <laughs> all right well whatever I'll, I'll i'll keep you guys posted on how that all goes. right can we get dr lemke back on the line yeah i maybe, think we might maybe. have to yeah we might we might need a consult start scheduling some sessions uh -huh. not a bad idea all right hey ryan rob uh where can people find us they can find us online at atbanter.com uh, hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at uh, cowbell at atbanter.com. And if you've disregarded everything we've said today about the evils of social media, <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But don't go on there because they're bad for you. But, yeah, just don't go there. <laughs> or if you do go there, just look at our page and then move, then just close it. Yeah. Whatever you do, don't type anything <laughs> because really, that's how they start tracking you. But really, or you can just go back. You know what? Just go on Spotify and just listen to our old episodes. That's <laughs> a, really that's the best way. That's the that's how you really get who we are is listening to our voices for like 260 hours. Yeah, and I'd recommend that you do them all in one sitting if you possibly can because that's the best way to become fully addicted to the AT Banter podcast. It's true. Build it right into your schedule. Every four yeah. hours, you need to be listening to an episode. There you go. Oh, I don't know if we want to do that. Like, do we really want a bunch of people addicted to the AT Banter podcast? Like, we can Absolutely. Think of the emails. And, uh, yeah, we need a points card now. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, or we, we could, we, wait a minute. We get everyone addicted to the podcast, and then we set up a Patreon account where we where people could pay for extra episodes or they could pay to just talk to us one-on-one. -on -one. I like it. <laughs> like that's going to happen. Jeez, that's, that's almost, that's almost like a church. It's like, I find, I find Ryan's voice so soothing and it just increases my dopamine levels. So I just need to talk to him. Uh -huh, I love it. We, sure. Okay. Well, I'm working on it. We'll work on that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Listen All right. And podcast. so Liz, do you want to give out any contact information for yourself? Well, you can certainly find my podcast on all major platforms. It is under Breaking Dishes. Yeah. And I am anxiously awaiting another episode. Yeah, There's one in production. Is there Excellent. really? Okay, yes, good. Yes, yes. Can you give us, can you tickle us with a feather and tell us what it's about? I have two that are in production right now. Uh, one, I am talking about, uh, about grief and not to sound too depressing, I'm balancing that with um, talking about uh, family ancestry in another episode. Mm. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to that. Keep us posted. I will. Thank you. Thanks well, for having me. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for helping us out again uh, this week. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, hosting with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again very soon. I hope so. Thank you. All right, that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. Big thanks to Dr. Anna Lemke, of course, for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. 
This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com.